0: Thank you for joining this webinar. I'm Robert Millard. I'm the director of Cambridge Strategy Group in Cambridge, oddly enough, in the UK. And I'm going to be moderating this webinar. We've got a, a really stellar lineup of speakers today. Uh, and we're going to be talking about trading services between the UK and Europe primarily in, in the post-Brexit environment, uh, focusing on what firms need to be doing now. As we all know, trades in services was not uh, comprehensively dealt with in the agreement with the EU, uh, so uh, a lot is up in the air and a lot is unknown, and no doubt it will unfold during the course of the year. But what we're going to talk about is how things might unfold, what things are, uh, what the situation is right now, and and, uh, most importantly, what firms need to be doing right now and thinking about. Uh, In the order that they're speaking, um, the the speakers are as follows. We've got Michael Lawrence, who's been with the Law Society of England and Wales for 17 years. The past four is head of international, and he's really been spearheading the the, uh, Law Society's interaction with the EU uh, through this Brexit process. He's got a 19 strong international department, 14 people in London and five in Brussels. So that's Michael, and he's obviously going to be talking about the UK perspective, what British firms need to be thinking about, not just law firms, partnerships. When people talk about services, traded services, often that swings directly to financial services. We're not going to be talking about financial services. We're going to be talking about professional services. So that's law, engineering, architecture, accounting, such like. The second speaker, uh, and we're lucky enough to have two guest speakers today, Michael's the one, Marcus Hartung, Dr. Marcus Hartung is the second. He is the managing partner of a consultancy by the name of Chevalier in Berlin, and he is also a senior fellow of the büseria Center on the Legal Profession in Hamburg and a member of their, their board of directors. And he's going to be talking about particularly the German perspective, but to the degree it's possible. Also, the, the, the perspective of European firms operating uh, now with the U- United Kingdom. Then we have Cerise Gardner, who is the fo- a founding partner of, a, of, of the firm um, Morris Turner Gardner, which is a leading law firm focused in on solutions for international wealth, philanthropy and professional service bodies. Uh, and uh, areas of expertise include tax, estate planning, family governance, charity law and philanthropy and immigration. And she's going to be focusing particularly on issues of mobility and immigration. And then finally, we have, uh, but by no means least, we have Zulon Begum. And, and Zulon is a, a partner with the boutique uh, partnership and employment law firm CM Murray. She heads that f- uh, firm's non-contentious partnership practice. And she's played a, a key role in a number of high-profile um, mergers, and, and she routinely advises partnerships on issues like the ones that we are discussing today. So without further ado, let me hand the floor to Marcus. Marcus needs to, to leave because he's, actually, he's going to be leaving a few minutes early because he has to testify at a parliamentary committee on trade and services, uh, so he's going to be leaving 10 minutes early. So if you do have any questions that you want to direct to, 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 to Michael particularly, please do so early and I'll be moderating the Q&A at the end. So without further ado, Mikhail, can I hand the floor to you?
1: Well, thank you, Robert, and and thank you for the um, Professional Practices Alliance for for giving us this uh, this opportunity. Um, obviously, my my main area of expertise is is trade in in, in legal services, but I will try and address um, you know the, the general issues which which tend to be the same amongst all professional and, and, and business services sector. I think the first point I'd like to, to make is that obviously the fact that we have a, uh, the trade and cooperation agreement, the TCA, is, is to be welcomed. I think the alternative, no deal, would have been of, of significant c- concern. And um, obviously having the TCA also provides the right context and, and setting for further discussions to take place between the UK and the EU because not all matters have been um, dealt with by uh, the TCA, or some of them are still pending. Um, I'm very quickly mentioned um, data um, adequacy, obviously, an an extension on this issue, but it needs to be revisited within the next four to six months and and, and not um, having had a deal that would have made, uh, obviously, these discussions a lot more different so professional and business services are dealt with under the tca under the, the services and and an investment chapter for provisions uh, on on trade into um the different modes of, of, of trade in, in, in services, whether it's mode one, um, essentially digital provision uh, from one country to, to, to the next, M- mode two, where the client uh, visits um, the, the service provider in their home country, or oh, sorry, in, in the home country of the service provider, mode three, commercial presence, and, and mode four, which is about physical uh, persons and, and temporary um, entry into the, um, the other parties' um, market. So these are all dealt uh, within the services and investment chapter. I'd like to note um, specific provision for legal services, which is one of the innovation of, of, of the TCA. And you may have picked up that the uh, the British government, including uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson, ma- made quite a lot um, out of it, you know, saying there was good stuff for, for, for barristers and solicitors, and I'm quoting the PM on, on, on this. What is innovative is the recognition that um, legal services, the provision of legal services cross-border uh, usually takes place under home title practice, you know, without the need for heavy mutual recognition procedures or the need to requalify into the host state profession. So it's great that the TCA deals with legal services in that way, structures legal services in, in, in that way. And it provides, um, I think, a, a, a useful precedent for maybe future FTA negotiations by the UK, and hopefully also on the EU side, um, to you know, take into account that specificity, specificity for, for of home title practice for, for legal services. Having said that, that the reality of market access uh, provided for by the TCA uh, is to be found in the annexes, in the national restrictions. Um, they, they can be called reservations or non-conforming measures depending on the methodology methodology used in, in, in the FT negotiation itself. But essentially what we're talking about is continuing restrictions at Member state level, often, which may impact on on whether you can actually provide, you, you know, the services you want to do to to EU clients, um, or the other way around, you know, from from EU providers to to, to UK clients, you know, depending on what sectors you're looking at, and and obviously depending on on, on the national um, restrictions. So the reality of market access is very contrasted, you know regardless of the general principle of the TCA. And essentially you're looking at, uh, for UK providers, having to analyze and comply with 27 different national regimes. I think that's, that's very, very much the case for, for, for legal services. You know, you, you have to look at what Austria, Germany, Greece have listed as, as national restrictions to understand. You know can you be there in the first place can you be there on a on a flying flow basis can you be there as, as permanent establishment what can you do when you are there and and also um you know what type of of collaboration uh association can you have with with local lawyers you know can you partner with them can you share profits with them uh are there any specific national restriction on on equity caps for example so we're looking at very much a, a country by um by country analysis i think for uk um companies um what one important aspect is is, is um you know the portability of uk entities or, or corporate forms and again using the Example of the legal services sector: um, UK LLPs is uh, is a mainstream mode of organising a, a, a law firm. And um, when you look at at um, you know the new reality of the EU UK relationship, um, you rely on national uh, provisions on, on on company law, corporate uh, law. So some countries, uh, you know, will um, still authorize. Um, you know, UKLLPs to have offices in, 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 in their jurisdiction. And for other countries, you know, you may um, have had to restructure your, your, your network of European um, offices. So the Law Society, um, my my um, uh, professional body, my organization has conducted a country-by-country analysis of, of what these restrictions are. To be honest, the, the, the TCA has not changed... Um, much of the picture in terms of what we're expecting on on market access, you know, having a look at what US lawyers, for example, can do or or cannot do in the EU. Um, There are some nuances or some um, um, potentially nice uh, surprises in one or two jurisdictions where restrictions were not listed where we expected them to 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 be listed so um um, so i think it's it's further work required there as to as to what that means also one exception in terms of of um, increased market access is is france um france has a new foreign legal consultant scheme which is only available to um to lawyers uh, with which um, the EU has a free trade agreement covering legal services and so we expect um, a positive development in France and we're waiting for the um, um, obviously for for, um, the, the go ahead from the National Council of French bar there. Couple more issues I would like to to discuss to, before looking at at more practical guidance to firms. Uh, one of them is mobility. I'm, I'm not going to say much on that because Ceris is is um, you know that's the purpose of a presentation. But obviously the days of free movement of people are over, and things will not be as simple as jumping on the Eurostar or jumping um, on a plane for services providers from 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 the UK. Wanting to meet their EU clients or to provide services um, to them. So it's, it's something that uh, it's a real change for, um, for, for the UK services sector. And, and I think a, a lot of work will need to go into that in, in the next few weeks, the next few months. And it may be um, a mixed blessing actually that we are not able to undertake much international travel at the moment because that gives us the time to be ready for when international travel resumes. Um, The other point is on the MRPQ. Now, MRPQ um, is, um, I suppose, a slightly less significant issue for for, for legal services because we have the principle of home title practice. Um, However, it's highly relevant for professions such as accountants, architects, um, engineers, auditors. You know, they often have to go through mutual recognition procedures before being able to operate in, in other markets, they may have to requalify in the host state profession. And, and the provision on MRPQ in the TCA are quite disappointing. The, the, the TCF follows the, the model of the EU-Canada CETA agreement. Um, the, the model essentially invites uh, competent authorities, professional bodies, regulators, to come up with a proposal at EU 27 level and to submit it to a joint committee, or in the case of the um, TCA, the the, the joint um, partnership, the partnership council. Sorry. In 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 the case of Canada, we know that uh, not one single MRA has been has been agreed uh, for the past three years. It has been into force, and even the Canadian and European architects have submitted a proposal. More than two years ago, and they haven't had the go-ahead yet from the European Commission, the Canadian government, and, and provinces. So it's not the best model for um, MRPQ. In the case of lawyers, um, a couple of jurisdictions still have a path to requalification for UK lawyers: France and Ireland. But for the rest of you know the other EU27 t- jurisdiction, essentially you're looking at going back to university if you want to to requalify, which is not great news. Um, And and why it could be relevant to um, certainly to lawyers and and also to other profession is in relation to um, what I called in a admittedly not very elegant way, but EU law heavy practice areas such as competition, intellectual property, uh, GDPR, um, advice to heavily regulated sectors, such as chemicals, pharmaceuticals, financial services, um, where obviously the EU has got a significant, um, the, the, the regulatory, uh, or the, sorry, the regulations coming out of the EU have got a significant impact on, on this sector. So it's something to watch. Do you need to requalify in the EU what is the best way forward and so on? Um, I may have a couple of minutes left so what I'm going to talk about is, is really practically what can um, UK services uh, providers do and, and again I've got this bias about the legal services sector so apologies for that, but I would say that um, most of the UK law firms with an existing network of offices across the EU have done all their homework, you know, before the, the, the end of the transition period, you know, they knew because they had worked on it for maybe, you know, sometimes years where they needed to restructure their UK LLPs, where they needed to make sure that the the people on the ground should uh, re-qualify. And on the other hand, you know, which jurisdictions were causing very little difficulty. And and it is true that in in, in some jurisdictions because they're very open to international legal practice, Brexit has had very little impact on on, on UK um, services providers. Now, for national original firms, which um, you know, may not have had um, uh, an office in, in the EU, some of them will consider whether to take the, the strategic and commercial decision to open up for the first time. And we have seen um, a few of them already opening up in, in Brussels or, or Dublin or, or elsewhere. Um, to uh, m- many reasons for that: to, to, to retain or to have um, the most effective way of delivering services to their EU client base, but also for um, continuing advice uh, on what I'll call the, the EU law-heavy practice areas and, and where they, they want to make sure, um, you know, they can. Have um, rights of audience in the Court of Justice, for example. Uh, their advice continues to attract EU um, legal professional privilege and so on. For individuals, individual lawyers, individual engineers, architects, accountants, uh, obviously they are, as I mentioned before, the mobility aspects to take into account and, and whether there is the, the need to requalify or not. Um, so, MRPQ aspect. In terms of, um, of, of what obviously what services they are currently providing to their clients and, and, and what they like to see um, moving forward. So that's the broad overview. Um, obviously, you know, we could talk about this topic for two hours, uh, even two days. Um, so yeah, delighted to take any questions. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Michael. Uh, and just a reminder, if you want to ask Michael any questions, please put them in the chat and I'll try to get them to him before he has to leave for Parliament. Uh, Marcus, can, can I hand the, the podium to you, please? Yes,
2: thank you, Rob. Ladies and gentlemen, I think <clears throat> just from a German perspective, there is good news for uh, English law firms in Germany. So Germany has been for years host country for many, many bigger, middle, big and small law firms Um, all the all the magic circle firms i think bars slaughters may are present in germany and many english firms have sort of bought or taken over german firms so actually the german legal market is a very much english and u.s dominated market so what has changed before this um, tca was entered into there had been two questions as regards one the authority of um, UK LLPs with their seat of management in the UK, whether they would be further authorized to provide legal services, the the German federal bar caught that in question. And the second question was, what is with um, LLPs which have been founded in the UK but had their seat of management in Germany? That still is an issue for them as these, we call them German LLPs, are not recognized by German law as English companies, but as German companies. The, the German law always looks at where the seat of management is. If you have your seat of management in Germany, then you are a German uh, company and you have to choose one of the German company structures. LLP is not amongst them. That is different, of course, with English LLP, So. UK LLPs with their seat of management in uh, the UK are recognized as English companies um, with with their liability regime in Germany. Now, um, good news as such, as the question uh, raised by the federal bar has been sort of dealt with, the federal bar has not officially given up their view, but... The, the, uh, the, the prevailing view in literature is that UK LLPs are still allowed to, to have their offices at a branch offices in Germany and to practice law. There is one difference which has not been dealt with in the TCA, English lawyers in Germany are allowed to provide legal services using their home title, One, second they are allowed to provide legal services in in the law of their country of origin. So they are not allowed to provide legal services in German or in EU law. And I think that is the standard practice in the 27 EU countries. Um, So if English lawyers are now practicing in Germany, they are only allowed to practice the law of England and Wales. or, or, or Scottish law, and 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 that raises doesn't raise any strategic issues, but I I would say issues of how to organize your cooperation with your German or French or Austrian partners if you have cross-border work um, and doing say a transaction in Germany which is uh, under English law or under U.S. law, you have now look a bit more uh, thoroughly whether, so how you how you organize your teams. That is the main difference. From the perspective of the uh, TCA, I think one can broadly say that in Germany, the situation for UK law firms is very similar to the situation before the Brexit because Germany has committed itself to the EU to allow uh, English companies and investors to do business in uh, in the EU states and Germany has very few reservations with regard to legal services. One main reservation is what Germany always had, the question of non-lawyer partnership. So alternative business structures um, wanting to enter into a partnership with, a, with German partners may run into issues. So if, if um, a law firm has gone public, um, that, isn't, that is a sort of special issue. But if, if there is a quote-unquote normal LLP, so with uh, lawyers, then there aren't any issue with regard to partnership um sharing of profits there are no equity caps and the like so you are as free as you have been before before the brexit uh, plus at the moment the uh, the the german professional uh, regime is being renovated or renewed there is a draft bill which uh, for the first time deals with law firms from third countries in germany and it is foreseen that uh, English companies have a, a right to establish themselves in Germany and to enter into partnership on a safe basis, not only on the TCA. So, so uh, overall, I would say those English firms who already, are, already have a presence in Germany um, don't have to worry about anything. The only thing is if you have these joint teams of say EU and non-EU lawyers, you have to look into who is doing what. The, the final or the last question is, that's an interesting thing. That's the question of fly in, fly out. So if English lawyers want to do business in Germany without having a, um, an office in Germany, um, and it seems to be, Uh, And I think that that's the view of the law society, Michael, as well, that fly in, fly out is allowed. So you don't need a presence in uh, or an office in Germany. You are allowed to um, uh, fly in, uh, work for your clients, notabene in the law of your country of origin and public administration law, and then fly out so you can do your Uh, your arbitration matters and your transaction provided it's on uh, UK law that that is came as a surprise because there is no uh, entitlement for uh, people from other third countries like the US or Turkey or so out of EU, to provide legal services in Germany on a fly in fly out basis so at the moment it seems that there is a real benefit for UK lawyers in the EU as they are dealt with, uh, with equally with uh, EU lawyers. That is basically that what I'm what I have to say. So what I would say, the situation at the moment looks pretty good and I must say it was really fun to work together with the law Society to find out, how the how the framework looks like and where loopholes are and you know holes to poke in it. Um, so from my perspective, I would say welcome um, and 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 continue to do business in Germany. Rob, well, that's it, what I can contribute today.
0: Great. Well, thank you, Marcus. That's very promising. And uh, uh, some of the things that Michael raised were a bit sobering, but quite a lot promising there too. So this is is turning out to be quite an optimistic webinar so far, I think. Uh, so, what about mobility and immigration issues and, and anything else that you you, you you think should be raised around your areas of expertise?
3: Sure, of course. Uh, well, perhaps I'll put the dampener on it for everyone then, shall I? And <laughs> <laughs> suggest that things might not be quite so rosy. Um, first of all, um, I wanted to just have a quick look at what the TCA does provide in relation to any changes that might have been introduced when it comes to UK to the EU, EU to the UK. Um, And then i'll go on to a few practical things that i think employers not just in professional services but all employers should be thinking about just at the moment first of all looking at the tca itself as as marcus has already mentioned and michael too actually um there there are provisions in there that have been introduced which are new new thinking a little bit a little bit um, of new thinking so for example one of the things that employers will need to understand is what is in the TCA, first of all, and how it might affect them. So there are a few gains, I would say, that have been introduced uh, into the TCA. So for example, um, the agreement does cover independent professionals wanting to go and work in uh, one of the EU countries. Again, there are limits to all of these, um, not just limits in time. So for example, independent professionals up to 12 months, but um, also in relation to uh, what degree of qualification and skills they should have before they would be entitled to any of these types of um, entry visas. Um, Short-term business visitors, we've talked about the fly-in, fly-out, and of course um, that's a big issue for just about every firm, I would think, because I think probably looking at the um, people attending, I would say most firms have EU clients and they would want to be able to go and visit and have meetings and so on. So I'll come on to that in more detail, I think, uh, a bit later, I think you wanted me to, Robert, but um, let me know if you want me to do it now. Um, Graduate trainees, good news there, because um, nothing nothing to stop graduate trainees going in for up to 12 months. These are all these new um, visa provisions we have also got the, a slightly more traditional one, which is the uh, contractual service suppliers. I'm looking at my list here, so I don't forget to mention them to you. Um, and intra-company transfers. So that, that covers graduate trainees. It also covers the normal intercompany transfers that we're all used to in the UK and have been for many years. But note that the requirements and the lengths of stay... Can differ very greatly between the UK and the EU. So, for example, just taking the intra company transfer as an example, going from the UK to the EU, it's limited to three years, whereas coming from the EU to the UK under the new regimes, shall we say, we've got five years and have had for decades, uh, and in some cases, nine years. So, you know, we we do, there are differences. So don't think that the UK rules simply apply automatically to the other 27 EU countries. Uh, there's um, There's no comparison in some cases. So looking at that agreement as a whole, what the mobility provisions seem to be suggesting is that the 27 EU countries would the are invited? I think probably to introduce a base level of mobility provisions, which we don't know yet whether they will actually. So at the moment we're in a bit of a state of limbo. It seems to me that we don't quite know whether EU the EU countries are going to introduce greater restrictions. They're going to follow and comply with the TCA, or what they're going to do. So it isn't quite as straightforward yet. But I do appreciate, and I, I think you said, Robert, that you know over the next year or so, things are going to be um, get hopefully, hopefully calming down, sorting themselves out and agreements will be reached and we'll understand where everyone is, um, is based. One, one of the things that's been really keeping us busy at the firm is uh, what happens about EU nationals already in the UK. And that's had a huge um, number of problems, although, you know, made easy as possible. But nevertheless, for for, uh, employers coming up, uh, they're going to have some challenges because we've only got five more months until EU nationals here in the UK can actually make sure their rights are preserved. And if people haven't and the rumor going around is there's still about 1.5 million people who are entitled to. Uh, apply under the EU settled scheme, as it's set, settlement scheme, as it's called, and haven't yet. Millions have, but 1.5 million haven't. So, what are we to make of that? Well, obviously, we're hoping that in our various firms, the EU nationals will have sorted themselves out, and where they are entitled to stay a, a status under the scheme, they will have already done so. However, um, just in case they haven't, I would suggest to employers now that you uh, encourage and remind uh, your employees that they should be uh, making sure they do this. Already, by the way, there are delays in the system which weren't there before, um, and we believe that's because there are so many people trying, not quite last minute, but it'll get worse and worse as we get to June, I think, uh, to get themselves onto the app and sort it out in terms of uh, their rights. So. Bear in mind, though, and I'm very uh, noticeable that um, Zulon is on the uh, panel, and I do not want to give any employment law advice, but it's very important that employers realise they're not allowed yet to ask to check their employee, their EU employees' uh, right to work. That is forbidden, I would say, sorry, Marcus, Uh, until um, the 1st of July this year, because until then, EU nationals have the right to be here, for the most part, especially if they've if they've been uh, here before 31st December 2020 so. EU uh, employers of EU nationals just be aware that you need to be thinking about checking status after the 1st of July and, of course, any new people coming in from the EU who have never resided here and therefore will not have had any uh, settled status or pre settled status rights some may, by the way, so be careful, um, then they, um, they will need to make sure, just as if it was a US person coming in, that they have the right to work. What does that mean, a work visa? What are they? Well, we've had new, new things being brought in um, for the last few months, and one of them is the skilled worker visa. What the UK has been doing, actually, is trying to sort of compensate not quite compensate um, uh, for the loss of free movement by making it easier in many respects to bring uh, overseas workers into the UK. So for example, they've dropped the uh, resident labor market test, which we had to run through for certain employers, employees, sorry. Um, And they've also um, reduced the salary level and the skills level. So now people can apply to come in on the basis of A-level type equivalents rather than degree equivalent before. So, you know, there's been a little bit of an opening up um, from the UK's perspective. Uh, We're we're not seeing that yet uh, from the EU generally in 27 countries, but the, the point being there that at the moment we can't guarantee what each EU country is going to do. Marcus has been very helpful in letting us know about Germany from the perspective of Um, lawyers in particular Um, in in connection with the rest of the um, EU countries, the 26 others, uh, at the moment it looks as though each of them is going to have a separate visa regime, why wouldn't they, Um, but the advice to UK employers sending people to an EU country is make sure you check uh, with every country that uh, you're involved with what their requirements are, because they're not going to be the same across the board, and they're not going to be the same as the UK, because we have deliberately, in some cases, um, been more generous than the rules appear to be in some, if not most, of the 27 countries. So that's really the, the general overview. Um, I'm going to come on later to the business visitor, the fly in, fly out um, issue that we've been talking about, because, again, there are some restrictions there. And yet again, you know, we're talking about, you know, you have to still look at the 27 countries to see what their rules are. But there is a ray of hope, as, as Mark has said, because you know, with Germany um, uh, opening up for the UK lawyers to fly in, uh, conduct a mediation, fly back out again. That sounds, uh, you know, a very good deal. In terms of at least one aspect, um, otherwise it's a it's, it's a bit of a I would say it's a muddle um, I think for employers at the moment. Clearly, those employers who've already got um, EU offices, they will be familiar with how to bring in other nationalities. So, for example, bringing in someone from the USA or uh, South America or whatever it may be um, to their country. So, that, in other words you are now going to have to treat your EU nationals and UK nationals coming into the EU uh, in the same way as you would other third party nationals. And that's the message really, I think for employers um, on a practical level, uh, look at the agreement. Yes, the agreement at the moment, um, although it's trying to lay a gra- groundwork for um, a transparent and equal, should we say baseline for um, visitors and workers uh to come in come into the 27 countries and the uk um at the moment there's it's not really there i would say it could take quite a while yet and picking up from michael's point uh you know canada and the three-year business i hope it's not going to take us three years but it, i think i think it will evolve over the next 12 months or so
0: great thank you series for that um Zulon, with your Permission, there is a uh, given Michael's hard stop in uh, eleven minutes. Uh, can I just there is a question to him? So if I would like to pose that and then go on to you, if I may, and, and the question, Michael, uh, is uh, could you please elaborate on the issue of legal professional privilege for advice provided by English solicitors to EU clients?
1: Sure, of course. And um, I mean, it is, it is a complex matter, but essentially what I'm talking about is legal professional privilege at EU level. So when you are involved with um, the, the European Commission, for example, in a cartel investigation case, or where you, um, you know, you, your client, you, you know, wants to take a case to the General Court or the Court of Justice of the EU. The Court of Justice of the EU interprets EU legal professional privilege very narrowly uh, only for EU and EEA qualified lawyers, so um, EEA is Norway, Iceland, Liechtenstein. Swiss lawyers, which are um, actually part of the EU lawyers directive, um, are not um, or do not, you know, their advice do not attract EU um, legal professional privilege, um, you know, according to the, to the to the Court of Justice. And obviously it's, it's, um, it's an important aspect of, of, of legal practice, you know, making sure that your advice to your client attracts um, legal professional privilege. So it's quite an our interpretation. It's something that U.S. lawyers have actually um, asked for um, a, a number of years in relation to, um, to, to, to the EU, to the Court of Justice, but unsuccessfully um, so far, I, I guess we will join ranks for them to seek um, at, at some stage um, a, a change of policy. It, it is also in contrast with the way um, the the English courts, the UK courts, um, treats legal professional privilege uh, for uh, foreign lawyers, which was again confirmed at, uh, by by one of when uh, um, decision on the High Courts um, uh, in, um, in 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 2020. Um, so what that means, I mean, the the old question of EU law advice is is complex um, when you're looking at Germany, for example, where. German qualified lawyers as a, have a very exp- um, extensive um, set of reserved activities, essentially, on a monopoly on the provision of, uh, of, of, of legal services. Um, it, it, it's clearly evident that um, you know, it is um, uh, very difficult for, for UK qualified lawyers to provide EU law advice. There are other countries um, where actually very few activities are reserved to uh, nationally qualified um, lawyers. I'm often thinking of um, you know, Finland um, where actually there's no set of reserve activities or even Belgium. Um, and so um, you know, there, there is a case that you know, EU law advice is actually uh, permitted um, for, for UK lawyers moving forward. But we always come back to the question of does it attract EU legal professional privilege and, um, you know, why it it matters, obviously, for for, for your clients. And I think that's why, you know, many UK qualified lawyers have have looked at uh, requalification into um, an EU um, legal profession. Um, It's also why, um, as uh, Marcus was, um, um, you you know, usefully um, uh, explaining that's why when you work in in cross-border teams uh, you know you need to be quite clear as to what the EU qualified lawyers does and and what input obviously the UK qualified or the US qualified lawyers do into that um, that that deal or, or, or the particular case um, you know you are advising on on behalf of your client so um, well I hope I've I've, I've covered it um uh, or I've explained it better, but it is a complex area.
0: Great. Thanks, Michael. And um, just a, another question to you, Michael, before we go on to Zulon, and that is, as things unfold through the remainder of the year, where is the best place uh, for firms to get information on, on, uh, on developments and, and um, not, not, um, only, not only law firms, but if possible, other professions too?
1: okay i mean i think i think for for for, for law firms i mean certainly um you, you know the law side of england and Wales and and uh, the the international department or Brussels office is um very happy to provide up to date information to 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 members um, we um, have um, country profiles uh, which are available upon request for 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 members which you know describes what the um, actual market accesses in you know in 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 belgium in spain in hungary and, and so on um and uh, and we provide um regular uh, updates as well. So we have a, a, a what is called a European Market Access mailing list, which every members is um, is, is welcome to join. And we do. Um, I mean, in in, in December and in, in January, sometime it has been um, you, you know weekly update we were providing to members on various developments in in, in national um, jurisdiction. As as you know, we have explained. You know, you, are, you have to look at the member state level. If you're looking at other professions, I mean, I would I would. Um, self- suggest that um you approach your respective professional bodies or 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 regulator to see what um, what information they 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 have on the matter and and obviously you, you know there are some um you know, law firms or, or professional advisors, um, which um, also specialize in these matters, whether it's uh, it's on mobility provisions or um, indeed restructuring of, um, of, uh, of a partnership of a UK LLP. So, um, you know, these are the type of sources of information which are available to, to UK services provider.
0: Great, thanks. And then one very short question I'd like to slip in before going on to Zulon, and Marcus, you may went away weigh in the, on this as well, I, I think to a degree you might have answered it already, which is, for British lawyers advising on UK law, fly in, fly out, is there any issue being organized as an LLP, a British LLP? No, there is no issue. Marcus, uh, Michael, are you familiar with? No, India?
1: I mean the, the the issue is is very much if you have an office in the country. Um, obviously, the TCA has got some provisions on that, but you have to look at at national um, rules and and regulations. So on the one hand, what does the national company law states about what's uh, what's possible for third country entities or not? And then you have to look at the professional regulations. You know what are the um, what entities are, are, are permitted for the provision of, of legal services in, in, in that particular country? So Marcus has uh, obviously shared some some fantastic news on on Germany, you know, both on um, UK LLPs with a seat of uh, administration and, and and control in 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 the UK and on FIFO, which again, you know, we we knew it was um, you know US lawyers were conducting FIFO and and although he was not explicitly um, authorised, it was kind of tolerated, but I think the clarification by the TCA is, is great news. It is not always the case in, in, in other um, jurisdictions. You know, they, they may have listed a, a number of reservations, non-COFIN measures, which um, obviously make, make things um, more complex. I mean, having said that, um, you know, FIFO, it's, it's something that we expect, um, you know, people to, to continue, you know, subject to the mobility provision, the immigration um, requirements, which um, which are, have been introduced with the end of free movement uh, of, um, of, of people. But there is um, often a national framework we need to be looked at as well.
0: Great, thank you, Michael. And, and thank you for joining us. I'm aware that you need you know, to, to drop off in two minutes. So please do so. Uh, and and uh, we're very grateful to you for, for being a guest speaker today. Uh, over to you, Zulon, uh, to 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 discuss first. First of all, other cross border issues that that may be relevant in this context, uh, other agreements perhaps, and then uh, what 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 you're seeing firms do actually do, and 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 um, whatever else you 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 feel you'd like to cover in the in the ten minutes or so that we have, and then hopefully enough time for one or two questions at the end.
4: Thanks, Rob. Um, I think I've got the most difficult task in finding kind of the bright spots in. Um, the the new regime, the new world going forward. Um, So I'll I'll do my best, uh, but I think as um, the other speakers have kind of alluded to, in terms of the overall terms, um, market access under the TCA does represent a step back compared with um, the UK's previous EU single market membership, but I think this was always to be expected. Um, so, in re- reality, the TCA doesn't go much beyond preserving the levels of access that were um, enjoyed by businesses um, from non-EU countries under the EU's WTO commitments. Um, there is obviously um, a, a very helpful chapter on legal services. Um, unfortunately, other professions haven't been recognised in a similar way. Um, but uh, what I would say in terms of Brightspot is that the TCA does create a platform which access could be potentially improved in future, at least in some areas, um, including some of the professional services areas. Um, I I think most people recognise is that the TCA is not the end of trade negotiations between the EU EU and the UK, but the beginning um, of what is likely to be very long term trade negotiations as the current regime beds in and markets on both sides and the political landscape on both sides evolve. So in terms of future opportunities, um, leaving the EU has, of course, freed up the UK to negotiate free trade agreements with other non-EU countries, independently of the EU. And this was one of the major reasons why um, you know, that, that was touted as um, uh, one of the benefits of Brexit. So to date, the UK has been mainly focused on rolling over free trade agreements that the EU um, already had with other third countries. So when the EU um, UK left the EU, um, the EU had about 40 trade deals which covered around 70 countries. Um, So far, the UK has made um, deals to continue trading in the same way with around 60 of those countries and their negotiations ongoing with um, the others at the moment. Um, But in reality, in terms of services, the existing EU FTAs that have been rolled over um, don't contain very much by way of enhancements enhancements to trading um, services uh, of, for the professions that is afforded to them under the general WTA, WTO regime. Um, one notable exception that Mikkel um, mentioned earlier is the EU South Korea FTA, which has been rolled over. It's probably the most comprehensive EU FTA when it comes to the um, provision of legal services, but it still doesn't provide full market access. Um, and um, a framework to we qualify um, uh, in, in that jurisdiction, so it's still fairly limited. Um, Mikel also mentioned the Canada Agreement, um, which is touted as being the most comprehensive um, EU trade deal, um, but again it contains very little by way of um, threshold services. There is a provision in there around Um, mutual recognition of qualifications but it's been three years since that deal was signed and um, nothing has been has been agreed on um, MRPQ for for now Um, uh, and I guess we're in the same position in relation to mutual recognition of qualifications um, in relation to the TCA because um, the TCA states that um, you know uh, Individual countries and regulators can agree, can, can make recommendations for the recognition of qualifications, which the Partnership Council can then. Um, under the TCA can approve. But uh, you know, if, we, if we go by the const- uh, the length of time is taken under the Canada agreement, this could be quite a long process. And I'm, and I'm afraid it's going to mean that individual professions and their regulators have to do a lot of lobbying at both UK government level, and also EU and individual EU um, member state regulator level to um, ensure that they are, their qualifications are recognised. Um, and I'm pleased to say that the legal, um, the law society has been has done a stellar job to date to, in that lobbying effort. And I, no doubt that's kind of led to the, um, the specific chapter in the TCA about legal services. So thank you to Mikel and his team for kind of making um, the efforts on, on that side. Um, the so in terms of other trade deals uh so so as i've said most of the trade deals eu trade deals that the uk has rolled over have pretty much stayed the same as what, what was signed between the eu and those individual countries the one kind of um difference is that the FTA signed between the uk and japan um last year which was the first to diverge from an existing eu FTA and includes enhanced access in relation to digital uh, and and data uh, and financial services and the creative industries. Um, It it does preserve the existing EU um, and Japan um, um, provisions around legal services, but I understand from Mikhail that there are ongoing negotiations around enhancing some some of the market access in relation to legal services. One of the kind of key things from the Japan Agreement is that it includes a, a strong commitment from, from the Jap- Japanese government to support the UK joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership um, Agreement, which I- includes um, Pacific, uh, a trade block um, between 11 Pacific countries. Uh, that would be quite a major step if the UK um, were to become a member of that trade block um, and would potentially provide um, much more market access for UK firms and professions in, in those countries, but that's still to be determined and like most trade negotiations is likely to be very long term long-term, uh, long-term protracted process. Um, So in terms of market access for professional services under other FTAs that might be agreed in in the future, um, the picture uh, I'm afraid is very uncertain at this stage. Trade negotiations are inevitably very complex and protracted as we saw with um, negotiations with the EU and the UK, which is actually in the grand scheme of things um, was concluded pretty quickly compared to other trade negotiations after have happened between countries. So uh, and the other thing to note with trade negotiations is it's it's not it's not possible to negotiate um, particular market market segments in isolations as we saw with EU, EU and um, UK, you know, uh, particular industries might be given um, undue prominence, for example, the fishing industry was certainly given a lot of prominence in the UK trade negotiations, uh, negotiations at, at the expense of other quite important industries like services. So, um, as I said, it's going to be, the landscape is looking very unclear at the moment. Um, There are potential opportunities out there, but they're likely to be long term. Um, And it's quite clear that um, all all the various professions, including the Law Society, will need to invest quite a lot of time and effort into lobbying both our government and individual regulators um, in different countries, including the EU member state regulators, um, around um, you know removing barriers to uh, services trade, um, for example, qualification requirements and, and those types of things that Michael's already mentioned. Um, and as I've said, the Law Society have done have done a stellar job to date. That's all. I, that's all I was going to mention. I'm afraid I couldn't find any other kind of really bright spots at this stage, I think it's, as I said, it's going to be quite a long-term thing um, and uh, maybe looking back in 10 years time, we'll, we'll see what the opportunities were. Um, and um, uh, I think it's going to be a backward looking point at that stage.
0: Great, well, thank you, Zulan. Uh, another question has come in, which I, I, I guess any of the, the lawyers on the panel could weigh in on and which that is, what are the consequences for non-compliance accidental or intentional is the, the regulatory issue would that fall under the jurisdiction of the sra if the 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 firm in question is british uh, or would it be the regulator in the relevant jurisdiction or does it go much wider than that does this create the risk of accidental criminal offenses would that be
2: brought you mean from from a german or a european yeah. So, so I, I
0: guess the question yeah. is fra- framed in terms of a British firm op- operating in a German, in a German yeah. or European jurisdiction, EU jurisdiction.
2: Yeah, this can be significant. So, if a if a German, uh, sorry, if an English law firm enters into a mandate agreement with a client providing EU or German legal services, that agreement would be null and void. So, that is from a civil law perspective. Secondly. Uh, regulatory wise i i think the it has not yet been dealt with which of the regional uh, german regional bars would be in charge for that because english lawyers in germany don't fall under the um, supervision of the german regional bars so the the only consequence could be that um that your mandate contracts would be null and void which is a quite significant consequence but regulatory wise Um, I have not found anything in the TCA or in German law which which would allow German bars to act as a supervisor for lawyers coming from a country which is not German. So it would be out of their
0: remit. Right.
4: I think, um, Rob, from an SRA perspective, if you're an SRA Mm. regulated firm with an office in London and offices in, say, Germany and you're providing English law advice, you are going to be regulated by the SRA. So... Um, while it's not clear um, which regulator would have, you know, the most standing to prosecute or um, censure a firm for not complying with local regulations, certainly the SRA will, will um, take notice of it. Um, the other thing I would mention is that if you are operating in a country without um, without not in compliance with the local regulations, there will be an impact on your professional indemnity insurance, for example, it may not cover you for any advice provided um, illegally in a jurisdiction. So that's, that has a very severe knock-on effect on your business. So, you, you know, the, the, there is a strong onus on firms to ensure that they're complying with local regulations when they're operating in a particular jurisdiction.
0: Right. Okay. Well, we are over time now, so uh, I think we we need to wind up. Thank you very much to the panel and uh, to everybody that's participated in this webinar. I think it's fascinating. Uh, Awful lot that we weren't able to cover because still unknown, uh, so I suspect we're going to have to have another uh, webinar on this topic maybe in the second half of the year when hopefully hopefully things will be clearer. But in the meantime, um, thank you very much and goodbye.